0: Lord, it's a beautiful place, this uh, church ministry that you've given us here in the body of Christ, so diverse, so um, captured with your love. And Lord, we just thank you that you have lit us up to be passionate followers of Jesus. And you light us up in a hundred ways, Lord, from um, compelling stories of people who've left Indianapolis to go to the Caspian, to folks who given their lives to Christ last Sunday, to... Um, just songs that resonate within our hearts. And now, Lord, we get to look at your word and just say, what do you want us to do in light of this passage? So, Lord, we just pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us. And I pray that you would use, um, Lord, my words and the study and my heart to land carefully and over a long term on the hearts of people, Lord, the truth that's here, meaning... God, I want today to be a day that will help us grow over the long haul. And so we ask you to do that, please, Lord. We are a needy people and in need of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In my office in Holland, there was a table that I used for counseling. And uh, if you were to look at it, you would have thought that it was mahogany. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, is it wasn't mahogany at all. In fact, what it was, was glued sawdust, cut in a circle, and then someone had a brilliant idea years ago to take a picture of mahogany and then glue it on the table and then sell it so that it looks like a mahogany table. And what that is, for those of you who know woodworking or know furniture, office furniture, it's called a veneer or a laminate. It's a picture of something that makes it look really nice, but if you were to peel back that veneer, you'd find sawdust underneath. The flooring in our house in Fenville was um, not hardwood flooring, although some people thought it was when they came over to our house. They'd say, well, this is hardwood flooring. No, 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 it's not hardwood floor. No, no, what that is, it's a laminate flooring, and if you were to drop a knife, which we did every once in a while on that flooring, it would gouge, and you would see that, oh, it's not real hardwood floor. It's actually glued sawdust with a picture on top of it. And, and that's actually why whenever we dropped a knife, I couldn't stand those gouges, that my wife would get on me, because I'd stick my foot out to try and let the knife land on my foot, because I didn't want it to gouge the floor. And she's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, the floor, the foot will heal, the floor won't. I mean, so, because what happens is those gouges would expose the reality of what our floor was really made of. It's one thing when we're talking about office furniture and flooring, when it comes to veneers, it's a completely different matter with this word. A phrase, veneer Christianity. I am decidedly against veneer Christianity and I hope that you are. Because you need to know that every Sunday my aim is twofold and The ministry of the Word is, one, to call people to receive Christ as Savior. And secondly, it is to pull back the veneer Christianity that I feel is an epidemic in American Christianity and call us to a real commitment to be real followers of Jesus. In fact, I've had it with veneer Christianity in my own life and the lives of others. You know what I mean by veneer Christianity? I I mean this idea of a, a picture of who we are that doesn't really fit with the reality of who we are. Maybe you know someone like that, or maybe you've been someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. You put on a good front, but the reality is who you are when no one's looking, or who you are underneath is not really what you portray. Churches can become like that. You know, it it looks like church, it smells like church, it feels like church, but there's no power, no life change, no transparency, no honesty. And and there are millions of people who will never darken the door of a church because they know somebody who lived a veneer Christianity life. In fact, you've probably heard people say that. The church is full of what? Hypocrites. This morning, I'm here to tell you that church doesn't have to be like that. And I'm here to plead with you, College Park, for us to continue to move forward as a church ministry and ask ourselves this question all the time, what does a consistently Christian community, meaning a group of people, really look like? I have no axe to grind, no overarching concern that we are a veneer Christianity church, but I want to warn us that we could become that, and whenever you have a congregation of this size, there are going to be people who are, in point of fact, playing the Christian life, putting on a front, and really developing a veneer. In last week's message, we learned that reflecting Jesus means putting on things like compassion and kindness and meekness, humility, uh, forbearance, forgiveness, and uh, love and patience. These these are the marks of what we are to individually embrace as those who know Christ as our Savior. And if you're here today, and you're still trying to figure out what the claims of Jesus are, the good news is, is you've heard some wonderful stories of how God can work in people's lives. And the bad news is you'll never embrace any of the things that I just said, like humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, unless you bend the knee and come to Christ for the first time. You can't use Christ to get what you want. And this morning, we're going to look at what Paul talks about in Colossians 3 as this call for the church to be consistently Christian across the board. And what he's doing here is he's expanding the application of this section. We're trying to close this this put-off, put-on section, and the application is beginning to widen. In fact, in our text this morning, all of the words in there for you, except one, are in the plural. And so Paul moves from talking to the individual to talking to the broader community, and then two weeks we're going to have um, some messages on the subject of missions, and then the third week from today, we'll begin to apply this to family and marriage and home. And so Paul has started to widen the application of this text, calling us to be the kind of community that is consistently Christian, or to put it in other wor- words, have us to be the kind of place that is fundamentally Jesus-centered. So the question is then, what are the marks of a Jesus-centered church? What what are the key characteristics of a group of people who would call themselves consistently Christian, who would say, enough with veneer Christianity. We want to exemplify the kind of place that is saturated with the person of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is in every single one of the passages we're looking at this morning. So is gratitude in every one of the passages, and so is the context of community. Every single verse, 15, 16, and 7, look at it, Christ Christ. Gratitude, community, Christ, gratitude, community. Meaning that the body of Christ ought to be filled with a centrality of Jesus, a passion to give thanks to God and the sense that we're doing it together. And by the way, that's what you've experienced already this morning. Thank God for the way he just orchestrated our service to be a beautiful illustration of what we're talking about in the text. The first characteristic that we see is in verse 15, and it is peace the text says this and let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body the greek word here for the word peace is the word arene it's used 92 times in the new testament and it's used the most in two books of the bible romans and ephesians Now think of that with me for a moment. Those of you who know your Bibles well, Romans and Ephesians. Romans and Ephesians, why would the word peace be used so often there? Well, here's why. Because Romans and Ephesians are two of the most doctrinal books in all of the New Testament. And the word peace is essentially linked to the way in which God justifies mankind through the work of Christ and brings us into harmony with himself. And so it makes sense that in two of the most doctrinal books of the entire Bible, we would see the word peace used over and over. Because the word peace essentially means to join. It means harmonious relationships. It's used of nations, the way in which they've been brought together. It's used of family members. It's used of friends. And it's also used of the way in which a man or woman, when they receive Christ, is brought into a right relationship with God. So it denotes peace and rest and harmony. It's what we celebrate when a person comes up out of the water, that it's not only a beautiful picture, but it's a reminder that now, because of the work of Christ, we celebrate that a person has been brought back to the Father, been brought back to the Son, brought back to the Spirit. It is that now he is whole again. And baptism rather symbolizes that event, that inward reality. The word peace in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it's used for the Hebrew word shalom. Those of you who have Hebrew or Jewish friends will know that a greeting in, in, in a Jewish culture is shalom, peace. It's all over the Old Testament. It refers to the blessing of God upon His people. When God blesses His people, there is peace. It refers even to the, the, the hallmark characteristic of the kingdom. When Jesus rules, will be peace. And in fact, Jesus Himself in Isaiah chapter 9 is described as the Prince of what? Peace. So it's safe to say that shalom or peace is the ultimate objective plan of redemption. The cross exists so that peace between God and mankind can be made. So I want you to understand that when I'm talking about peace, that there is something deeply spiritual and God-centered about peace and experiencing peace. This week, I was walking around the prayer path, and you know, it was that day when it went from kind of warm weather to kind of cool weather, and the leaves were blowing, birds were chirping, and it was just a beautiful day, and I'm walking around just enjoying the, the beauty of the outdoors. It's quiet, and a butterfly is fluttering across my path. I mean, you could have heard like music in the background, right? As I walk, I just stopped, and I just thanked God for the, the peace. There was something about that environment that drew my heart upward. Peace has this tendency to bring us into God's presence and to cause gratitude in our hearts. Stressful moments don't create that, do they? I don't find myself having the same emotions when I'm approaching the drive-thru window at McDonald's. Or Burger King. How many of you dads have this experience? Okay, what do you guys want? And the person on the intercom's is going, May I take your order, please? May I take your order, please? May I take your order, please? What do you guys want? Sarah, what do they want? They want chick- they chicken nuggets. What? Chicken Mc- no, I said McNuggets. How many? You want a value pack? I don't know if I want a value pack. I'm just like, get me out of here, right? As I'm, as I'm driving out of the drive through I don't have thoughts of, Oh, God, thank you for that moment. I'm like, God, thank you. That's over. That's what I'm thinking, right? So stress and, and noise and, and traffic and just crowds and all that stuff. It it creates tension. And this peace is this thing that it's like your soul is content in the presence of God. Peace, by definition, brings us into the presence of God. And there is this sense that Paul gives us here that that peace is wholeness and safety and completeness. I started to think about this. And then I thought about Sundays. Sundays you realize that Sunday should be one of the most peaceful days of your entire week. That, that what happens actually at 96 in town every Sunday should be peace. That means that those of you who serve in our, as a parking lot attendant, and you wonder, what's my job here? Why do I wear this uniform? Right? Why do I do like this? Why do I do this? You know, you know why you do that? so that no one gets in a fistfight before they come into church. That's why. You do that so people aren't ticked off, stressed out, and sinning as they come into our parking lot. You are on peace patrol, man. That's why you're here. Seriously. And it's important. Wait, You serve at a visitor desk? You know what it's like to come into a packed foyer with four kids having no idea where to go in a facility that at times doesn't make a lot of sense as to where things are? And you walk in and you're just like, where do I go? What do I do? You know what your role is at the Visitor Center? Your role is to bring peace in the midst of chaos. It is to help guide people from one point to another to another. Last Sunday we had 2,700 people here. And I just want you to realize that when you're a first-time visitor and you come into that foyer area, you come into this building, it is stressful, it is difficult, and you know what your role is? Your role is to say, hey, can I help you? I'm here to help bring peace. In fact, we have found in our home that Sundays are important enough for us that we start planning for them on Saturday evening. In fact, this morning when I got up, all the kids' clothes were lined up, their shoes, their socks, their pants, their belts, their shirts. I mean, it looked like the rapture happened right in the hallway. In fact, I've often thought if we lined them up right, the kids could just dive down the hallways and get dressed. You know why? Because we have found that sin resides in in our inability to find socks and belts. And I am determined, I'm not... You know, the devil, when he fell out of heaven, he says, fell in the choir loft, wrong. He fell into the sock drawer. That's where he fell. And so we've decided, look, we're going to try and make Sundays as peaceful as we possibly can and not let socks distract us from the glory of God. That's great strategy. You see, Sundays are supposed to be about coming into the Lord's presence and just an ability to go... And yet, for some of us, Sundays are the most one of the most stressful days of the week. Some of you dads are more concerned about getting here on time than you are about all the sin that caused you to get here on time. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) (laughs) That was the sound of conviction. (laughs) Some people weep, other people laugh. All right? (laughs) The reality is, we we know that, don't we? That, That peace is supposed to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, why is that? Here's why. Because the text says it is the peace that Jesus creates. I can show you passage after passage. Ephesians 2 says, He is our peace. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, or 2 Thessalonians 3 rather, says this, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace in every way. Meaning, These are people who received Christ. They understand what peace is because they've experienced peace with their living God. They've come to faith in Christ. He's reconciled them to himself, and they know peace. Listen, Christians get peace. We understand it. We've experienced it, and therefore, the community of the body of Christ ought to be filled with peace from the moment you walk in the door to the way in which you worship to the way in which you lead, believe, and also the way in which we relate to one another. Peace, in this sense, begins with an understanding, a captivation with the glory of God in the work of Christ, bringing me to himself. I understand what that is, and therefore, I want to be a peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9, I want to be a peacemaker and so be called the sons of God. Meaning that my hope would be that if you understand peace, that you are known in your office and in your neighborhood and in your marriage as a peacemaker. You get peace, you understand it, and therefore you want it to rule. That's what it says, doesn't it? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You know what that word means rule? It's in the New Testament it was used for an umpire, a referee, an official, at a game, who would say, What? You're not competing according to the rule, and then he would set things back in order. Now, I understand that. Back in Michigan, I was a referee. I I refereed high school basketball games. I I did this in college for two years, in intramurals. And, you know, if you can do refereeing in college with your own classmates, you can just about referee anybody, because that's the real challenge. And what a referee's job is, is to determine what's out of bounds and set it in order. In fact, I found that being a referee was a great training for pastoral ministry. You know why? Because you have to make quick decisions. And then tell people what you're going to decide. And then usually about half of the crowd doesn't like what you decide. So it's great training for pastoral ministry. (laughs) But a referee takes things and he sets them in order. And here's what he says. Peace is the referee of your home. Peace is the one that says, boop, time out, time out, time out. Peace is the one that says, wait, in this conversation, honey, we, we need to let peace rule. Peace Peace is supposed to be the characteristic pattern of Christian homes and Christian communities. It's the place that people come to find rest for their souls. So over and over, the Bible calls us to a life of peace. Peace is supposed to be the referee of their hearts. So what does God want? Here's what He wants. He wants husbands and wives who know how to resolve conflict. He wants children who love their parents and their siblings. He wants relationships restored between parents and children. He wants friends who have been unreconciled to be brought back together again. He wants the person in this church who you can't stand and don't even want to talk to for you to actually send them a card or call them on the phone. He wants people, instead of saying, well, how come I have to ask for forgiveness this time? I always go first. (laughs) He wants you to choose to die to yourself and say, peace, peace rules my heart. He wants ministry leaders who get along, and church ministries to consider others as more important than ourselves. So, you see why this is so important? It is this concept of peace that Paul calls the church to, this, this peace that is the, the ruling, governing, referee of our hearts. So I want to call you this morning to do some hard things, to pick up the phone, to set up a time to talk, to acknowledge to your spouse, look, we need to talk about this. We've just put it under the surface to get over the fact that, yes, you need to go to them to die to yourself and pursue peace, because after all, this is exactly what Jesus did for you. And therefore, Jesus wants his community of Jesus-centered people to be filled with peace. To have this literal location to be a place that people come in and go. The second word is the word gratitude in verse 15. He says, and be thankful. So not only is this mark of peace, it is the mark of gratitude and thanksgiving and by the way the way in which this is phrased here it means that we are to continually be filled with gratitude it means that gratitude is to be the normal frame of mind for a believer it means that once you've received christ once you've accepted him and you've given your heart and life to him that you understand that that fundamentally gratitude is normal In fact, the word gratitude or be thankful here is the Greek word eucharisto. It's two words, good and grace, meaning that you understand how good grace is. And because you understand how good it is and you understand how much you have been forgiven and how gracious God has been, that your life is continually filled with a relentless passion to say thank you. Over and over and over you say thank you. Thank you. And the older you get, the more you say it, not less. Now, a lack of gratitude is a sign of rebellion in the Bible. Romans 1, verse 21 tells us that a lack of gratitude is the expression of a self-centered, godless heart. Second Timothy 3, 2 tells us that a characteristic pattern of the last days will be people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and ungrateful. And the reason why no gratitude is rebellion, is that people who are not thankful think that they deserve certain things and that's why they don't say thank you. And if anyone, those who have experienced God's Eucharisto, His good grace, ought to say thank you all the time. I don't understand people who, when I'm, let me back up. When I'm in a parking lot, and I come up to a parking spot and you and I are head to head and there's one spot and I give you the spot, you better wave. Okay? I don't understand people who, especially Christmas time, I come up to the spot, you go you go ahead who don't wave. In fact, that happens every once in a while, and that really ticks me off. Because I think, well, what well, you deserve the spot? What, you just, what, oh, you, I owed it to you to give it, is that what it is? So, when I, so I'm giving it, and maybe I'm not fully giving it like I should, but when I give that to someone, I'm expecting a wave, a, an acknowledgement, right? Because they don't, they don't deserve that spot. I do, right? And I gave it to them. So what Paul is saying here is that if, if gratitude doesn't flow from your heart, you act as though you deserve stuff. And hear me, an expression of a self-centered heart is a lack of gratitude. And the people of God get gratitude because they understand the beauty of what God has done for them through the person and work of Jesus. And that is why, friends, expressing gratitude in the context of the body of believers is really important. Your involvement in this worship event is really important for your soul. Why? Because you, you can worship by yourself, you can express gratitude to yourself, but when we do it together, we magnify and help each other in our gratitude as a whole. It means that worshiping together creates a ballast of thanksgiving that helps all of us worship in ways that we would not be able to worship before. And that is why it's really important to worship together. And let me add this, that is also why it's important to worship together as a family. Here's why. Because gratitude is not something that you can just teach. Gratitude is caught. Gratitude is something that you see, you savor, and you are motivated to participate in. And I want to tell you, if you want to teach your kids how to worship, if you want to teach them how to be grateful in their hearts to God, you have to model it in front of them. As a kid... My parents demonstrated this over and over and over. I watched, I got a value set from my parents about how to take notes in church because my dad had one of those study Bibles, you know, that you open it up and it had like four pages of notes and, you know, I thought maybe one time he'd just flip it down, had a little stand, you know, he whoosh, and he's got this big old thing he could write out and had this, this, and I learned that as a kid you could study the Bible and I learned that that it was important because I watched my dad do it. And listen, some of you who Don't Whatever reason, worship as a family, what your kids are missing is the opportunity for them to see what what you just saw here and to have them see your eyes filled with tears, your hands raised, your heart going gangbusters after your God. That's important or our kids are not going to learn how to worship because they won't learn from a mom or a dad how to do it. So can I call you just to maybe think maybe a little differently about what this service or the 11 o'clock service or the 8 o'clock service could or should look like? I want my kids and I want your kids to know how to worship. And our staff and our children's workers aren't the best people to teach them how to do that. You are. And gratitude is that critical. Because a Jesus-centered church will be filled with moms and dads and kids who understand the beauty of what it is to be in God's presence and to say, oh, how we love Jesus. Third is the issue of the word. Look at verse 16. It says, And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the word, the idea is the word is to dwell in this community of believers richly. What does that mean? It means at least four things. First, it means that this is a community of believers that have the gospel as its center. Meaning they never get over the beauty of the cross. They understand the beauty of what it means of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to be celebrated. And the gospel, the simple message that Jesus saves sinners, is still the central reality of their church. So a Jesus-centered church has the gospel in the center. The second thing is, it says, but the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To dwell in you richly means saturation, means that the whole of the church ministry is saturated by a beauty and a love for the word of God. It means that this is a group of people who come together, and they hear the word explained, and they submit to its authority, and then they live it out. Some of you probably heard this little phrase. The Bible said it, I believe it, what? That settles it you got to say it with a little bit of more of an edge, you know. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? I want to add one more to that. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Here it is. Let's do it. Because being saturated with the Word doesn't mean that you just understand it or that you just know about it, but it means that you then live it out. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that because you know a truth, you've lived the truth. Because, you see, spiritual information without application leads to self-deception. And one of the ways that veneer Christianity takes hold on a body is people who know a lot of truth and their knowledge is ahead of where they really live. They teach and talk and live miles ahead of where they really live. So they, they teach and think and talk ahead of where they really live. Third, there is mutual edification. Notice that it says, teaching... And admonishing one another. Meaning that there's a culture that's so word-saturated that this body of believers realizes that it's not just the paid staff or the elders' responsibility to teach and admonish, but it's all of our jobs to do that. Meaning, teaching is I take a truth and and I, I tell you about it. Admonishing is I warn you about what would happen if you don't apply it. So, can we just be sure you understand this, that your staff... Are not the professional confronters. Meaning, if you have a problem in your home and you need counsel or help, certainly we're there to help, but please understand that we're there to help you find solutions to your home. Please don't think of, well, we gotta, someone, someone needs to talk to someone about that. Who can we do that? Oh, I know. We pay the staff to take care of that stuff, right? Like a little moniker instead of igniting the passion to follow Jesus could be, you, you pay us to take care of your problems, right? See, that's not what the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be certain people who do this and others who don't, but rather the idea is this this church is so saturated by the Word of God that they see their mutual obligations to one another to both teach and admonish, to both give instruction and to give warning. So it's your responsibility, not just mine, to give warnings to people when you see them falling off the way. That discipline or the idea of going after someone in order to restore them back to the body of Christ is not just a broad-brush sort of idea that the church as a whole is supposed to do. It means that you individually have a responsibility. You can't hide your eyes and say, I hope someone's taking care of that. No, that means that if you see it, it's your responsibility. Because teaching and admonishing one another means to richly love the Word of Christ such that we want to see it saturate our entire lives. And it has power... Over the entire ministry The fourth is this idea of vibrant worship through music Notice that he says Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs And thankfulness in your heart to God Now this worship through music Is directly tied to the teaching and admonishing So there's something that happens in worship That's related to teaching and admonishing And we saw that and experienced that already this morning So I want you to understand that Our musical portion of our worship service is not like the warm-up band to the real show, right? It's not like the prelude to the the real substance. And sometimes I I hear people who get this mentality that that, that preaching is the real stuff and music is just the, the ramp. It's all declaration of the word. It's just in a different form. So please don't talk about worship as if worship only happens through music or now we're going to prepare for worship by reading the Word. No, we read the Word in worship. We preach in worship. We sing in worship. It's all worship and we preach in various forms. It's just different methods. And what Paul says is, is that by Psalms, which It's probably songs drawn from scripture or hymns, expressing deep doctrinal truths or spiritual songs, songs that flow from the heart. There is to be this dynamic edification of the body, a teaching ministry that happens through vibrant, dynamic worship. So it's preaching of a musical sort. I am not the only person who's preached today. There have been other preaching mechanisms. Mine happens to be a verbal form. And what Paul has in mind here are Jesus-centered churches who love the word and it dwells in them richly. So we love the word. There is something very unique to College Park Church. Uh, Jim Greer told me about it. In fact, when I did my research on all of you, not all of you individually, but when I researched the entire church as a whole, I I asked some people what they thought about College Park Church, and and Jim Greer said this, Mark, it's my favorite place in the country to preach. I was like, why? Why? I didn't understand all that. He said, you'll see. There is what I call the college park, mmm. <laughs> you need to listen for it. It's it's the savoring after a, a great bite of a meal, where you go like, mmm, this is good. And every once in a while, at the end of a particular thought, if you listen, you'll hear this body expressing its desire to dwell richly in the word as it expresses its agreement and yearning for the word with a Mm. You may not even hear it because it's so much a part of the fabric and the culture of College Park, but I hear it, and it was very unique and is, and it tells me that you have been taught to love the Word and you love Jesus through the Word. I'll say, Mm, mmm, it's good. You see, that's the characteristic of a Jesus-centered church. And I just want to call you to a lot more love for the Word. I mean to love it so you get into it and you love it so you learn how to counsel and you love it so you put it into the hearts of your kids and you love it so you know how to help people when they're in trouble. And you love it because you can see the word of God just transforming people's lives and you just are like, "Mm, that's church. That's what a Jesus-centered church is supposed to be. Last characteristic is it translates into real life. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word Or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What he calls for, this final mark, is that they take living a Jesus-centered life seriously. They are not playing around. They live real life with Jesus at the core. I can almost imagine Paul, at the end of this section, walking around the room as he's got a scribe writing down his words, and he says something like this, and and, 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 and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all. I can just hear him. He, he's he's emphasizing a, a broad brush application, that that you're to take this idea of who you are in Christ, position, Christ as the core, and how you're to live that out, and and... and, and put the death, the deeds of the flesh, and put away these sinful things, and put on this stuff, and now applies it to individuals and now the community. Now he brings it to the final crescendo in this text, and he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, this is both deep and wide. It's deep because it's all in the name of Jesus. Meaning that you're to take the name of Jesus and everything you do is saturated with his approval, his endorsement, his authority, honoring him. It means that everything you do is saturated with the lordship of Christ. It means we're to approach our practical daily life with a view towards the fact that everything we do, Jesus is personally involved in. He's right there. His name is over it. So next time a temptation comes across your path, ask yourself this question. Can I do this, watch this, look at this, say this, act this way in Jesus' name? That will take the luster off of it. Secondly, this is wide. Notice how emphatic Paul is with the breadth of this command. I mean, he says it three different ways. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. you get his point? He, He is... He is arguing that the Lordship of Christ must be the banner over every arena of life that nothing can be separated from Him. Or to put it how we've said it, He is core, you don't make Him core. He is Lord, you don't make Him Lord. He's the center, deal with it. You see, some people play games with God and His grace. They think that they can create little areas of their life where Jesus isn't allowed to have rule and you can't do that with Jesus. The point of fact, He is Lord of all, not Lord of part of all. So there's three questions we ought to ask ourselves all day long. Does this fit with the name of Jesus? Will this action or attitude or thing create gratitude in my heart for God? Can I, can I thank God for this before I do it or after it? You see, what God wants is His children to be so saturated with His presence, to be so captivated by what He's done for us in Christ, that our hearts are filled with peace, that we love peace and we seek to bring it, that our hearts are filled with gratitude. We just can't get over how awesome our God is. And that we love His Word and we see it and we are so in love with the Jesus that we see coming out of this Word and we see how His Word transforms people's lives and then we want to take this stuff and get out of here and go do it in the marketplace, in the schools, in the neighborhood and say, you know what, Jesus didn't call us to come, listen and sit. He called us to come, seek His face and get out of here for the glory of God. So it's easy to obey in this room. The challenge is when you leave. You see, last week we saw those cardboard testimonies up here. Some of you afterwards said, hey man, we keep doing stuff like that, we're going to have to put Kleenexes in the bulletins. Because, right? <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. We were standing and clapping. I mean, it was like, that's how I say it, it's like, Church. I mean, that's the way church is, man. That's That people, these folks are real, and we know that none of them could have ever flipped that card over and changed their life on their own. So what we're standing and applauding in that moment is the fact that Jesus is very real in front of us. Our hearts are filled with the fact that Jesus brought these people back to Himself. He radically changed them. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for God, for what He's done in their lives. We see how the Word of God changed their life, and we were motivated to go out and be different this last week, weren't we? The world has seen enough of the near Christianity, friends. The body of Christ is supposed to be marked by people who are so lit up for Jesus that following Him just makes sense. And what that requires is for each of us to decide that following Jesus is worthy enough... It's a strong enough call. The church is important enough and the power of sin is deceptive enough that we have to take this seriously and ask ourselves, so how can I help create peace? How can I facilitate gratitude in my heart and in my family and in this body? How can I help the word of Christ to dwell richly in this place? And how can I be part of the equation to really live this stuff out? At the end of the day, it is not just a body task. It is an individual task. And each of us have to determine what part God wants us to play in helping College Park become an even more Jesus-centered church. And that begins by some of you understanding that in order for you to experience real peace, you need to come to Christ like you just saw earlier in the service. By receiving Jesus... And saying, I am done with me, I choose to follow you, Christ. And once you've made that decision, then all of us make the, the, the firm resolve in our hearts I am done with veneer Christianity. I'm done. Father, we ask you. to rid us from this the dear Christianity that we all know too well. Thank you that you have brought peace to our souls. And Father, forgive husbands and wives who this very hour aren't talking to one another or whose drive into church was filled with conflict. Father, help us to make marriage and family and relationships fit with what we know to be a picture of your reconciliation work between us and Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to be better through the power of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit to be better emblems of the Lord Jesus. But we want College Park to be a Jesus-centered place filled with peace and gratitude and the Word of God and real life, edgy life, gutsy, real commitment to Christ. We want to turn the city upside down for you. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. We want to see our nation awaken in a fresh and new way. We long for you to pour out your Spirit upon this assembly of people. One person at a time. So Lord, thank you to for ministering to us with a song like peace like a river thank you for the beauty of being able to see a baptism thank you for the opportunity to worship through music thank you for the opportunity to worship by listening to your word and friends as you said, have your heads bowed and your eyes closed at the end of our service there will be some people up here at the front Maybe there's a prayer burden that you need to talk with them about or have prayed over. Maybe you're here today and and you're just carrying a thousand pound weight on your shoulders. And that song, When Peace Like a River, that was for you. And there are people yet who would love to be able just to pray with you. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. Oh man, today could be the day when you're brought back to your creator God. Today could be the day that God sovereignly designed for you to hear this message, to wake you up to the reality that you are messing up your life. So don't leave today without that issue resolved. These folks up here at the front are here just to minister grace to you in whatever way that God by His Spirit is calling you to decide, to act, and to move. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our peace, that you yourself are our peace. Thank you for the beauty of what it's meant to be together in this body of Christ. We love you and are so grateful, so grateful for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.